Hey y'all, you are listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Today, y'all will be listening to the Fireside Energy panel. This was a panel discussion held on November 20th at Well Data Labs. Panelists include David Ransomwood, DRW, Matthew Bauer, Kathleen Stacks, and Dr. Michael Orlando. The topic, the evolving energy industry. Enjoy. Well, first, thanks so much, everyone, for making it out tonight. I know it's a snowy night, so super excited um, to have everyone here. My name is Sarah Durdowski. I'm the executive director of the Global Energy Management Program over at CU Denver. So we run a lot of energy programming, um, both public education, professional ed. We partner with DPC on a couple um, of courses, and then obviously our graduate education. So this series is part of something we've wanted to do for a long time, this fireside chat. Um, Luckily, we ran into Catherine, who's an excellent podcaster, um, and she was game to do this. So essentially, some of our um, goals for 2020, things we want to do is change the energy conversation. We don't want to just have more and more panels where we all sit together and we have people talk at us and then we go have conversations later. So this is kind of an attempt to kind of move in that direction to drive conversation. So as much as these wonderful panelists are very um, expertise... I'm also going to lean on you guys as um, participants as well. So Catherine's definitely um, created a great panel, has some good um, programming, but we do want interaction from you guys. So definitely um, think about questions as we go through, um, because that's the biggest piece. We are a public institution, and we really believe we're a safe place to drive conversation. So feel free to be a dissenter, but be one that is um, open to different ideas and open to having dialogue back and forth. So um, that's my short spiel. Again, thank you so much for being here, um, and hopefully this is the first of many of these fireside chats, um, and I really appreciate it. I'll turn it over to Mike. My name is Mike Raubach. I'm with Well Data Labs. We're hosting you guys this evening, if you didn't notice some of the uh, Well Data Labs <laughs> paraphernalia around the room. Uh, we just want to say that we're very excited to have the opportunity just to be a place where the Denver energy community can come together, uh, exchange ideas, uh, where we can have a great uh, lineup panelists here uh, to give us some their in, some of their insights. Um, at Well Data Labs, we're a company, we're a software company uh, that works primarily with upstream oil and gas operators to uh, give them a piece of software that helps them collect, manage, and analyze their high-frequency frac data. Um, they're able to use this for a number of different things, optimization, uh, analysis of wells. Uh, our company is really pushing the edge on Uh, how to use this data for machine learning purposes, uh, more advanced analytics. So we're excited about what the future holds for the oil and gas industry uh, and the ways that uh, we get to be a part of driving that forward and and driving forward uh, the growth of the Denver energy and gas community in particular. So thank you all for being here. Uh, Feel free to snag any of us in uh, the Well Data Labs gear. i got a couple of us floating around. uh, and ask Any questions? And uh, we're uh, very excited to hear what you guys have to say. All right. Thank you. Well, good evening, and to all those here and to all those listening, you are tuned in to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I am Catherine Mills, and welcome to the very first Fireside Energy Panel. For those of you who cannot see, this is yet again another potential blizzard. I have done two of these now, and every time there's a bloody blizzard. So yes, I appreciate you coming out. Tonight's evening is brought to you, of course, by Well Data Labs, the team revolutionizing oil field data. If you want to minimize human error and increase productivity through data efficiencies, you need Well Data Labs. They have been a trusted frac partner since 2014, and their expertise are slowly taking over the oil field. Of course, we have the University of Colorado Denver Global Energy Management Program, 
Now, if you've been to any of the other ones or you've heard the podcast, you know that I love the gym program. And why? Because it is not your daddy's MBA. This degree is designed for life on the go, and the gym program is focused on turning today's energy professionals into tomorrow's energy leaders. So if you have a passion for energy and are interested, uh, check them out and stay energy curious. And of course because my boss is here. <laughs> Shout out to my team at Surtech. I could not do what I do without them. That is S-U-R-T-E-K. They are global leaders in enhanced oil recovery solutions from Wyoming to Saudi Arabia. Surtech has been providing unbiased, innovative, unique solutions for their clients since 1978. So I want to jump right into it, but I have to say, the more we do this, the more I'm amazed by the energy ecosystem especially oil and gas. We are a huge industry, and yet we're very small. So the podcast and these panels and future panels have sponsored or partnered, rather, with Oilfield Helping Hands. And this is a group that literally extends that neighborly reach to those in need within the oil field. So thank you all for being here, and any chance you get, meet with Sally, because she leads Oilfield Helping Hands out here in Denver. So, <laughs> why are we doing the Fireside Energy Panels? These panels are designed to fully examine the evolving energy landscape from the perspective of our energy influencers. Now, the questions we may be addressing tonight are not easy. And in many cases, there will not be an actual answer. Today, I was thinking about a few of them, and the ones that came to mind were, how do we successfully deliver energy clarity? How do we spread it forward? How do, we, how do all energies fit together? What is the end game of these anti-activists? And the, of course, the one that was at the top of my brain is, how do I get oil field trash party tickets? <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, a lot of texts are going back and forth. In my opinion, the best way to combat gaslighting rhetoric is to speak in common terms with energy experts. By doing this, we are able to open dialogues, we are able to speak about energy transition, we are able to address geopolitical concerns, and we are able to see how those will affect our most important asset, which is the oil and gas landscape. Lately, we've been seeing groups pop up on LinkedIn and various other ways. It's all about the hashtag. It's all about making some proclaimed dedication to changing the narrative. But are we really doing a good job, and what can we do to get better? Tonight, I have tricked four influencers <laughs> into joining. <laughs> Two of them still are looking you for the fire, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> like, I mean, we got a blizzard. There's no fire. It's not a monologue. It's interactive. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm kind of, I'm kind wait of till not you're, like it. Zero for three so far, Catherine. Right. Just, just wait till your, uh, your intro comes. <laughs> so to kick that off, we have Miss Kathleen Stacks. She is the executive director of uh, external affairs at Guzman Energy. She first began in Parks and Rec and worked her way up into the Colorado Energy Office under Hickenlooper. Um, you are a true energy policy powerhouse. <laughs> So, <laughs> so Guzman, for those of you who do not know, they are great disruptors, and they are uh, market-based solutions addressing energy challenges with emphasis on delivering reliable, clean energy and affordable power. To my second victim, 
You all know him as the, as the oil and gas resident bad boy. I know him as David Ramsden Wood, <laughs> the owner of Hot Takes of the Day. He has held several roles throughout the oil field um, and is really an expert in oil field analytics from operations to economics and beyond. Because of this, his reach and agility have given him the platform to start multiple successful teams and companies. And most importantly, he recognizes that oil is at a pivot point. And it is how we respond to that pivot point that will define the future of the energy industry. So congrats on Bloomberg. You're kind of killing it. Yeah, Bloomberg was fun. I, had a, I, I must admit I had a good-looking day, uh, which was obviously the most important thing. And I know it was not a solo cup uh, that I brought on the set. It was, it was actually coffee, but... Uh, I'll know that you for brought next a red time. solo cup onto the set. That's what people might think that it's I so did. So oil field. <laughs> <laughs> next up, we have Dr. Michael Orlando. He is the managing director of Econ One Research here in Denver. You basically wrote the book on strategy and analytics, and he pra his practice advises organizations facing complex commercial and political risk, and for those seeking legal expertise. So the stories you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> You were also an engineer at Shell, and you were vice president and the vice president and economist at the Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City. So we are thrilled to have you here. My final victim, Mr. Matt Bauer. He is a geologist by trade, but do not be fooled. He is on the forefront of wrangling big data through automation, machine learning, and uh, his motto is "Figure it out." And I gotta tell you, I used to work with Matt. Matt's specialty is writing code that replaces his coworkers. <laughs> Only in your first year. Only first year reservoir engineers. <laughs> so, hell of a panel, right? <laughs> so, panelists, as you know, and as Sarah said, tonight is about open, uh, setting an open and actionable dialogue. We have pointed and general questions for you. At any time, if someone says something you love, you dislike, or you want to expand upon, please feel free to do this. This is supposed to be a conversation. So to kick us off, Matt, I'm going to start with you. Give us a little more about yourself, why you agreed to be here tonight, and what energy transition means to you, and then we will go through each of y'all as well. Sounds good. Uh, so a little bit more behind all that. I worked uh, about 10 years as a geologist in upstream and midstream asset transfers, uh, went back to mines, uh, through a fluke, actually picked up Python programming. We had a, a member leave a research consortium, take all the data with them. And I had the big decision, was I going to figure out how to do a basin-wide study without the data that I had before, or was I going to switch topics and add another year? So I went for the, I'm going to do it anyways, and learn to program and scrape data, and the rest is all history. Um, so... Uh, energy transition, we're, we're in an interesting time, for my opinion. The, the attempts and sometimes successes of trying to change the balance on where we get our energy, um, that's a common topic in populace. Um, but at the same time, globally, the demand is actually still going up, and that causes some hiccups and some challenges. Um, and I, I think on the other side on transition is the decreased cost of storing data so we can actually store the data that we're collecting. Um, and then the decrease of processing so we can gain insights uh, from that by processing it out. So, all right. Thank you. I accidentally started working in energy. It was <laughs> a choice between oil and gas and water, and it was 2014, and oil and gas was 
really exciting and controversial and water is water and doesn't change ever. And um, I was nine months pregnant, so I was like, let's do oil and gas. So I um, joined the state uh, with the Department of Natural Resources right around the time, uh, if any of, any of you will recall, the oil and gas task force was formed. Um, so I went on maternity leave. They decided to do this task force because no one called me while I was off, like with a baby. And I came back, and it was there. And then and I had to basically learn all of the uh, controversial oil and gas issues and everybody's feelings about it across the state, which actually was the most amazing learning experience. Um, we had seven meetings across the state, including at least two or three hours of public comment at each one of those. So we heard from people who were pro-oil and gas, people who were anti-oil and gas, people who did not know what oil and gas was, a guy named Seamus in a flannel t-shirt. Um, <laughs> we ran the gamut. Um, so that, so that was sort of my, that was my launch into to oil and gas policy. Uh, and then I sort of accidentally, again, ended up at the energy office, which is a much uh, broader uh, a focus on energy and, and kind of the energy policy arm of the state um, and, and really kind of had to learn a whole new set of issues and figure out what the Public Utilities Commission did. Um, and now I work for a sort of a semi-utility I had literally had to Google wholesale power when I started because I didn't really know what that was, but now I do that. Um, an energy transition to me, I think fundamentally, is um, it's based in economics. We are so much of the change across the world has been uh, pushed by environmental interests, which I think are perfectly legitimate, perfectly perfectly valid, but it's been expensive, um, and we we've, we've seen a lot of particularly lower income people have to burden, be more burdened with the cost of this transition because the technology wasn't economically viable yet. The economics have now caught up with those environmental interests, and now that transition is happening much, much faster. And we're seeing really, I think, great benefits to a broad number of people, and we're seeing some really um, concentrated negative impacts in some places that are seeing their tax base and their jobs go away. And so the, the transition is... Um, everything from an electricity and power standpoint to uh, how we make our products, um, you know, how we're dealing with the, the sort of day-to-day, um, the way we interact. I had a conversation with somebody recently who uh, runs an electric distribution co-op, and they've installed a solar array right next to an elementary school. And those kids are going to grow up knowing that their power is coming from that solar array, and they're not going to know any different. That's a totally different mindset than any of the rest of us have really thought about. So it's a, the, the transition is, is big and broad, huge challenges, great benefits, super fun to work on. <laughs> Dr. Orlando. So um, a few other things about me. I grew up thinking the power came out of the light socket, so that <laughs> would be different from what your aspirations are for the youth. That's a good thing. Um, but um, you provided a very gracious introduction for me. So the one thing I'll, I'll mention about myself is, um, which may put some of my comments in context, is um, just what I'm thinking about now and, and where, uh, if anyone follows my Twitter or LinkedIn feeds, you know that I'm kind of really obsessed about the intersection of business and politics. Yes. And just fascinated about how societies evolve through time to provide um, political access to certain people um, who might not have it at certain points of time and then have it and then how those people use that political access. And that's what I'm doing a lot of my reading and thinking about these days when 
when I have time to read and think. <laughs> um, about energy transitions, I guess the way I think about energy transitions is it's like um, there's two, two things I think of, two aspects of energy transitions. One is the one that we tend to think about all the time, which is technological. It's, mm -hmm. it's how have the innovations, you know, and, and frankly, the, in some respects, what we're going through now is a, not different than what we went through when we got off of you know, off of wood-burning fires, off of water wheels that ran factories in colonial America and everything like that, it's that the minimum, minimum efficient scale of using technologies for moving energy around is actually falling and falling and falling. And, you know, you think about batteries as the new frontier that we're at right now. The idea that you could get a cost-effective battery to carry with you anywhere and have the kinds of amenities that you have at your house when you're hiking a 14er or something, <laughs> you know, that's a, a possibility now. That wasn't a possibility 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. But the other part of that reduction in minimum, minimum efficient scale in general that's driving the nature of, of transitions to new forms of energy is that those same innovations that have driven the, the gadgets that we carry around to have power in our pockets, um, those innovations have made it easier for people to organize. Mm -hmm. So to me, energy transitions is also about the political interface between the various energy sectors or technologies and the people out there who are influenced by those things, you know, for better or worse. The reality is what we're going through now is it's not that the externalities that we create didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. It's just that no one had a phone in their pocket to let us know about it, right? So now the, the big defining feature of what we're going through now is that people have devices and access to information and communication technologies that let them organize to let us know when that frack truck is making a lot of noise and they can't sleep or their kid has a test tomorrow morning or any simple, seemingly mundane thing that's so much less important than what we do, at least that's the way historically that the old guard in the, in the industry used to think about it, actually it's kind of an imposition. And now it's really cost-effective for them to let us know, and I think that's a defining feature mm -hmm. of, of the transition that we're experiencing. Interesting. DRW. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so obviously, I want to thank Catherine, um, and I've said this a lot. I, I think that the, and the reason I've, I've started the hot take of the day, and now that I'm a retired guy, um, and so it seems to be my full-time job, uh, but we, we need faces. And so when I think about energy transition, I think about it very simply like this. In the United States, we use 20 million barrels a day of oil, and we produce 12. 14 million barrels a day is used in transportation. So when you think about 14 million barrels a day of oil and transportation used in the United States, all the climate change, uh, solar, wind, nuclear, hydro conversations that you want to have need to include how do we actually replace 14 million barrels a day of oil. And the unfortunate thing is people aren't willing. Willing is not the right word. People are not able to go on TV, go on LinkedIn, go on podcasts and call these people out uh, because they're afraid for their jobs or they're representing their company. And um, I was very fortunate with One Energy Partners. Uh, it was sort of the, the pinnacle of my career. We were able to build a company. Uh, we sold it. And um, I've always been a bit of an asshole. And so, um, so I decided yep. to pick a fight. I decided to, to pick a fight with... Um, 
with people who aren't talking about things fully. So, so let's talk about it. My, my kids complain they don't have air conditioning in their school. I didn't have air conditioning in my school. My kids complain they have to walk to school when it's snowing. My kids, my, my parents didn't really care. They just let me walk to school. And so, so if we want to have a conversation about climate change and transition, we need to have a conversation about consumption. Because yeah. unlike cigarettes, we haven't tricked people into using our product that kills you and is addictive. We provide a product that people want to use to heat their homes and drive their cars. So I will be spending a lot of time on stats today, but the one I want you to think about is 14 million barrels a day, 35% of electricity in the United States is created from natural gas, and 27% is coal. So if we're going to get rid of 14 million barrels a day of oil, we have to generate electricity from somewhere, and right now, 62% comes from fossil fuels, so deal with that. <laughs> well, to your point, that leads me to my second question, so thanks for that segue. Um, everyone is on board with cleaner, better, faster energy, but there seems to be a huge connect disconnect about what that actually means. And we are no longer at a point where we can utilize nuclear. It's kind of been made obsolete since the 1970s. It's not as easy as turning on water, or flipping a switch and turning on water and solar to replace uh, you know, our loss in energy. But there's a question about sustainability. So is the energy industry, and this is a general question, anyone jump in to begin with, is oil and gas on a sustainable path, and is the energy industry on a sustainable path? And what does that mean? So I want to start. Yep. <laughs> I, I promise I'll let other people talk, I swear to God. Um, so so I, I know, like, it's painful. Oil is $50, $55, and we know that the break-even supply in this country is not 55 uh, I was on Bloomberg Television yesterday, and we talked about Saudi Aramco. Saudi Aramco produces 10.3 million barrels a day with a 53-year reserve life index that, that literally they could grow to 20 if they wanted to, and they can do it at $7.50. Like, they are the cheapest, best source of oil in the world, and we're trying to compete with that where we barely make it work at 55. So, like, it, it, that doesn't make any sense. However, it's not a commodity price problem. It's a balance sheet problem. And so I'm going to call out, again, we do what Wall Street wants. But when you lever up your balance sheet in 2014 to buy oil that worked at 100 that doesn't work at 50, you have guys that have billion, $2 billion, $3 billion of debt that are one, two, three times debt to EBITDA. And so every single dollar that they make that they have to pour back in the ground is not paying down debt and it's not paying down interest. So the unfortunate thing is that we are so poorly capitalized as an industry that all the layoffs and all the problems that we're seeing is because guys just won't go through bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And so I believe in 2020 that the, the crisis is here and there's no more money. So the guys who are three, four, five times levered, and I, you know, I'm going to call out Chesapeake not because I'm saying they're going bankrupt, but when you issue a going concern warning in your quarterly, when you have six plus times debt to EBITDA, I don't know how else you go anywhere but down. And so they've been trying to keep rigs up and grow their way out of production or out of debt, and you can't grow. So what we will see in 2020 is bankruptcies. Bankruptcies mean new capital, new infusion, and stability, higher price, and then we as the marginal barrel in the world can compete. So, I'm going to jump in on coal. Yep. Uh, so I think one of the really interesting things about the, uh, where we are as far as the transition away from coal um, is that when coal plants were built back in the 70s, 80s, 2012, um, <laughs> plus or minus, um, they were 
take away 2012. They were good decisions at the time um, because they were that was the cheapest source of energy and power. Uh, and unfortunately, they're really expensive. So those companies that built those coal plants had to finance way far out. And so what we're dealing with now is both the financing of the original construction of those plants as well as all of the additional capital expenditures that the companies have had to make to comply with new environmental regulations and emissions reductions, equipment, and things like that. Now that we've got renewable energy that is literally cheaper to build and run than it is to run existing coal plants, we got a long, we got a lot of debt that goes out a long way, and we don't have a pile of money to, to pay these things off. And we don't, and, and we can't just burden the ratepayers with these, with with all the the sort of accelerated depreciation of these fossil fuel assets. So how do you meet the emissions reductions goals? How do you close these things down when you've got all this debt out in front of you? And I think there's, we've got some tools that work for some different kinds of utilities. We have a lack of tools that work for that, that for for others. So take investor-owned utilities can use some bonding mechanisms and securitization. They can rate-based things. Then the nonprofit generation transmission utilities can't do that, so you've got to look at different kind of creative uh, financing. I think what we're seeing now is that there is, because the difference um, in the cost of renewables and the cost of existing coal generation in particular is so, that delta is so big, there's private capital now available that can, that can enter into the market and change this a little bit. Um, but that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges facing the, the coal industry right now. Those things are going to have to go away. And we got we to gotta make sure we're not burdening the, the sort of the poorest communities across the country with the costs. Well, I, I think about maybe a little bit different than you on the, on the capital structure side. I think it's hard to think about where we are with respect to, to companies kind of finally biting the bullet going bankrupt or whatever without thinking about the, the broader industrial evolution that we're going through. And I think a big piece um, is that, you know, when you, when you think about where this industry has come from, honestly, since 2008 till now, this is a very short period of time. We've gone from shale oil not even being a thing to, to all these innovations that were changing the ability to exploit that resource, I mean, differently year to year to year. And I feel like what, where we are right now, I'm less, I'm less uh, this is a weird way to put it, I'm less optimistic about bankruptcies than, than you are. I get like why you're optimistic, why you would, why you would assign a, a, a word like optimism, and I would. Uh, you know, you don't want zombie companies basically lurking around the economy. Um, what, I think the nature of shale oil is, is that the creditors know that rather than forcing a company into bankruptcy, they'd rather work it out and see if one of the last man standing type of companies will buy those assets mm -hmm. at something above a premium than actually some liquidation value. So I expect this downturn to not be a whole lot different than the last, you know, what was it, 2016 or whenever we had the, the sort of first blip of, of the ill-fated OPEC chase for market share, which is ridiculous when you're talking about a commodity. But anyway, I don't think it's going to be a whole lot different, although I think that the creditors are going to force the companies to bargain a little more with the last man standing type of characters. Because ultimately where this industry is headed is as you have technological advance, 
kind of go from big stepwise innovations in our ability to frack and recover and produce EURs and things like that to incremental marginal innovations, that's where we be begin to consolidate and scale up. The, the banks are still too clever to force an actual liquidation type of bankruptcy, but everybody sees the writing on the wall that we're not going to have the stepwise change in, in, um, in break-even prices that mm -hmm. we saw just dropping dramatically over the last five or 10 years, right? You're gonna have much more marginal drops in break-even prices. We kind of can look forward now and say, for the most part, we know what the technology is gonna look like in this industry. Now, the way to make money in this industry is scaling up massively. You know, the metaphor I often use with my students is that when I was in the oil industry as a, as a reservoir engineer, it was kind of like big game hunting. Mm -hmm. We'd go out in the Gulf of Mexico and you know, we'd shoot one big piece of game and you know, be with a really big gun. and it would be <laughs> expensive. Lions, and they would be expensive and they would be big sort of moonshot kind of things. You know, now it's small game hunting. You know, you go to North Dakota and you look to the left and there's pheasant. You look to the right and there's more pheasant and it's all pheasant in every direction. And basically the, the way to bag a lot of that is to do it in a very low cost and efficient way. Mm -hmm. The way to bag a lot of that big game back in the day was for Shell to become an innovator in, in seismic technology and imaging. You know, and different companies to become innovators in different sort of technical niches that they could they could command. But I feel like that we're going to probably continue to see something that we think are, are zombie companies. I think they're going to be brought to the table more or forced to the table more by their their creditors because I don't think the next ten years of the shale the shale era is going to be like the last ten years of the shale era. I had to think about what big game existed in the Gulf of Mexico that you would shoot. <laughs> Whales. I got it. I got it. You know, it's interesting listening to you guys talk because obviously my head is in the rocks usually. So uh, um, while I do think about the fiscal side of it, I also think about, okay, so we have proved up plays and we have wells in those core source areas that had really good near borehole permeabilities. And I'm like, well, how much is that is there? because of the depositional environment and how much you get in. And then how much was overinvestment by eager folks when we're running 100 plus a barrel. And now we're seeing a lot of that marginal acreage in play concepts that aren't true um, coming to the fruition. And I think that once a lot of that glut cuts, moves through or it decreases in what was leveraged against it, that we'll see a lot of fixes. Um, I still am an optimist. I think with the continued mapping of maturity windows um, in other basins within the United States, we have the infrastructure, we can do this, but we're not going to do it by growing out of it. We've got to cut all this fat that's sitting on our side. So, Did you have a... No. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Kathleen, the next question is directed towards you. Other influencers, based off of what she says, feel free to jump in and add commentary. So Guzman Energy is very much disrupting the utility space, and y'all are addressing energy challenges with cleaner and more affordable power options. Can you take us through what that actually means, what you're doing, and how it will affect the rest of the energy spectrum? Sure. So I think a little bit, um, well, all of this basically comes down to the cost of renewable energy being cheaper than coal. Um, but the transition itself, which is really something that we're working to accelerate and, and 
um, deliver particularly to rural communities across the country uh, is not just turn off the coal, turn on the sun, and call it a day. It's not how it works. So our company, and one of the reasons actually that I came to this company, it takes a very pragmatic approach to the, to the transition. And we're doing a lot of really creative things that don't on their face make a ton of sense. So for example, we did a deal with Holy Cross Energy, which is a wholesale customer of Excel's that serves sort of the Vale and Eagle Valley. Um, they own 8% of Comanche 3, which is one of the coal plants down in Pueblo. And uh, they wanted to set a goal of being 70% powered by clean energy by 2030. They needed to get that 8% of the coal plant out of their portfolio in order to meet their goals. So we came in and said, we'll take that 8%. We'll take your output. We'll replace it with uh, 150 megawatts of wind. So you no longer have it on your portfolio. That coal is now in our portfolio that we use to serve other customers. But what it's done, in many ways, is changed the conversation about Comanche 3 and the future and what's possible. And can you ramp down production because you don't need that coal? If it's going into the market, it's not the cheapest energy. Mm-hmm. We have a different situation here in the West because we don't have an organized market, so that makes things a little more complicated um, from a basically... Um, you know, wheeling and dealing power. But, the, but the, the, the fact of the matter is you have, to, you have to come up with really out-of-the-box thinking. The status quo isn't working anymore. These, these co-ops um, can't change things on their own. They're, many of them are stuck in really long-term contracts, and by really long-term, I mean like 2075. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be dead in 2075, um, and these people are still going to be buying coal from some generation transmission utility. Not really. I'm just kidding. They're no, no. Yeah, I think you're going to be alive in 2075. Right. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to say. That's it's going to be ugly. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing about coal, and, and this is what was coming to mind when you were talking about it. Um, so, so, like, disruptive technology. Let's think about Uber, right? So Uber, as a company, is losing, I don't know, a billion dollars a quarter. And, but they also displaced cab drivers in New York who had paid $300,000 for a medallion and this was their livelihood and they had passed it on. But we don't get upset that the cabbies got screwed by Uber who fundamentally is using Silicon Valley money to subsidize a business that doesn't actually work. And the reason I know this is because I took a cab because I was lazy and I didn't want to wait 10 minutes at DIA and it cost me $77 to get to my house in a cab and it's usually $32 in an Uber. So someone is subsidizing $40. So when I think about the analogy in terms of coal, like I feel bad that, that uh, when we built out the utilities, we needed monopolies, and that fundamentally is what the United States did to build out the power grid, but like we're past that. And so, again, if politicians want to have real conversations around why is coal still being used, the real answer is because there's debt and, and, and hedging that they have locked in until 2075 in a monopoly business that they themselves supported that they don't want to bankrupt. So how do we manage that if we don't want consumers to pay the real cost of the fact that we were having energy security with coal, then the government needs to buck up and figure something out and be honest about it. And so, you know, look, at some point I'm going to end up running for politics. I think that this is pretty clear. And, and it's unfortunate because there's a lot of videos of me doing bad things out on the Internet. <laughs> Little but, plug. But I, no, but I'm, I'm going to say that like, doesn't matter. We don't anymore. want politicians. <laughs> Low bar. We don't want politicians who've spent 40 years planning to be a politician 
and and because they're not actually coming up with creative solutions and they're not rocking the boat. So, you know, ultimately, whether I do it or not or whatever with the hot take of the day, we need to have the real conversation, which is if we have a long-term contract on a utility till 2075 that the government is subsidizing with some sort of monopoly, then let's either raise the price or bankrupt it and have the taxpayer own it. Like, full stop. I'd love to see more non-extremist lawyers, scientists, and engineers in politics, so please do. <laughs> non-extremist. I'm, extre- we'll I'm extreme. We'll talk about that later. Let's be clear. <laughs> Michael, the next question is for you. So you are one of the rare few that gets to do analytics for the full spectrum of energy from the beginning to upstream of oil and gas down to the end user in electricity. From your perspective, we are seeing regulation upon regulation happening. What is the point and purpose? Because at some point, you're just fining for the sake of fining in order to slow down the economy. So are policymakers targeting fossil fuels? Are they attacking uh, alternatives as easily? What are you seeing in the regulation space and from your research? I guess I would go back to my introductory comment, I I think what we're seeing is the reality that a lot of the traditional forms of energy created external consequences that we didn't really have to reckon with. Mm -hmm. You know, when I worked in the Gulf of Mexico, I mean, the technology for dealing with oil spills was if you see a sheen on the water, you report it, and if you report it, you pay a little bit of money, and everybody signed something that said nothing actually ever happened, and you just keep going on. And now, you know, we had 24-7 video of the Macondo blowout. And, you know, that... And a phenomenal movie. An awesome movie. And a phenomenal (laughs) movie, that's right. And and so we can sit here and scratch our heads based on our own perspective and values and interests of why anyone would, you know, in, in Brooklyn would care about this thing blowing out for 30 days. But... That's a value judgment, and the, the reality is now that we're going to have to deal with the consequences mm-hmm. of more people being informed and more people getting to express their viewpoints. That's the reality of the industry. So uh, you're going to have to remind me of where I was going with this. What was the question? <laughs> well, I, so, so, but you say, you say informed, and I, I, I disagree. I don't think that people are informed. They're entirely informed. They're, they, you can't compare their value for blow. Like, I can tell you about my brother who went down to the Gulf and surfed, and he kind of could feel the dispersant on his skin. But, you know, other, are you, just because some other hipster in Brooklyn is not down there surfing with them doesn't mean that their feelings about what's going on there aren't the same, you know, aren't just as valid. So um, I, I think that we have to find, you know, t- to me where, okay, this is where I was going. And I got, I got a beer for you too. Uh, so, so this is where I was going. So the reality is even if, if everything is about perceptions, you know, what, what matters is where eventually where the rubber meets the road. So what we have to do also is drive that conversation to technical realities mm-hmm. of what damages really are, what they aren't, what the costs of recovery are, making sure that the people responsible for things are paying the costs, making sure we're compensating people whose water is affected by our activities if we make mistakes, owning our mistakes, okay? And, um, and the other thing is we have to, we have to part of that reality of, of conveying to 
to affected stakeholders is pointing out where the benefits are that are not just in your gas tank. For instance, the industry in Colorado, I think, contributes almost a billion dollars in tax revenue uh, to the state. That goes to schools and that goes to environmental conservation. It actually goes, and when you're dealing with public finances that are stretched thin, okay, we're, and you're dealing with a resource that declines like shale oil that is going to drop off if we actually did a frack ban. Roughly, I just calculated last weekend because this kind of thing amuses me. It's what you do. Fraction of production in Colorado that is coming from, from, from wells on two, two years or one years, wells online two years or one years or less. So the nature of shale oil production is the declines are so rapid when you look at our production, that means a lot of the activity is actually from those first couple of years of, of production. That means if you shut down particular activities that you don't like, you're probably going to shut down you know, uh, tax revenues on the, from the industry anyway, which is disproportionately taxed. And we can argue whether that's fair or not, but the bottom line is it supports a lot of good things at the fiscal level around the state and in local communities. That's going to drop dramatically, and that also is a conversation that I think, for the most part, you know, look, you're going to have 30% of the people on one end who are going to agree with what the industry does no matter what. You're going to have 30% on the other end who are going to disagree. But most of the people in the middle in a political system where you really have to gather the people in the middle, they just want to get their kids to soccer practice and get dinner on the table, and they want to make sure their school has resources. And so we have conversations about reality. We're talking to the people in the middle, and those are the people that matter the most in political, in political bargains. We, we are, but, but again, and sorry, Matthew, if you, if you want to go ahead, fire away. So, so what I disagree with is that people are informed, because they're not. And if you want to be scared, like I'm, oh boy, I'm, I'm scary on LinkedIn, I get it, but when I go to New York, I meet some of these hedge fund guys, and they are terrifying. So the guy I was on with Bloomberg yesterday, um, he was talking about thermal runaway. Have you guys heard of Thermal Runaway? Okay, let me explain Thermal Runaway. pesticides, but not on this. <laughs> so on your, on your iPhone, they glue the lithium battery to the back. And there's a recycling plant somewhere in the Middle East, not the Middle East, the Far East, where there's some dude that rips the battery off, and it's so glued that a new person punctures the battery one out of ten times. A really good person punctures the battery one out of fifty times. If you puncture the battery, the lithium reaction with the other chemical that forms the battery generates heat up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit within 15 seconds. So the person who's some guy making 13 cents an hour is pulling a battery off, and if he punctures it, it has to go in a bin. So these Teslas that are like magically launching on fire, or when they get in a car accident and you puncture the lithium battery under the car and it merges with the other chemical, you have a, you have a fire that takes 15,000 gallons to burn out, and if that happens on the George Washington Bridge, that bridge is done as is everybody else on the bridge. So when you talk about the things that people, that people know and don't know in externalities, is we have driven a society that is so um, happy to move to EVs and batteries. Well, where does lithium come from? It comes from China. Have you seen what the lithium mines look like? So you have batteries, thermal runaway, 
all this pollution that we're offshoring, people don't understand what they're asking for. And no one in oil and gas, like Rex Tillerson, doesn't go on television and be like, you guys are fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> like, 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 but again, let's have these conversations. So yeah. I, I would say that people aren't actually educated on externalities. Sorry, Matthew, I know I cut you off. No, no, it's all good there. Um, but I, I do have to say on that, I think technology is improving and improving a lot of that. I think one of the things that kind of addresses that, the initiation event on lithium battery ion runaway, from my understanding, wound lithium film batteries have taken a lot of that risk out of it already. So... Again, yeah, we're yeah. Move, we're moving, but we're not there yet. And there are there are still Teslas in people's driveways that people are filming, and you can see it on social media where their car just erupts in flames. Yeah, like it's the I new lighting your sink on fire. Back to your point as well. I think that that conversation of the pros and cons of all of our energy sources and what are those risks and have an informed decision because I don't think the populace is informed. I, I really I, don't. I think we. You know, so being an economist, as you are, and you trust markets, right? I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. You said, <laughs> okay. Were you smarter but, because of it? <laughs> but as, as an economist or an economically thinking person, you tend to trust markets. You tend to trust decentralized decision. What I trust is that people understand their values and what their concerns are. And for us to sit and say, well, you're too dumb to really understand what exactly are the trade-offs? You know, what I find in, in our industry often is that what we don't think about, even though we, we do think about from this meta-social macro level, look, the benefits of, of a lot of what we're doing exceed the costs. Um, what the bargain we're often telling to individuals who live near a frac site is um, heads we win, tails you lose, but don't worry, it's got like 99% heads. Right? That's what we're telling people. It's only a 1% chance, a half a percent chance, something happens to your water. They're still hearing, heads you win, tails I lose. And they don't care if you win 99.999%. It's that super teeny thing that they're worried about. You want to change the conversation? Ensure them from the risk. Ensure them from the risk with the massive value that we create in this industry, and most of it goes away. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, hang on one second. Then I'm, yeah, I'm like, bring it on. Um, <laughs> I kind of love it. I think part of the challenge here, too, is that we, the, and I think the oil and gas industry, and they're not alone in this, but the oil and gas industry in particular is banking on educating people. We're going to fix this because we're going to educate people better. And that is not happening. <laughs> because people are... Sing it, of, sister. Right, I think. <laughs> because people have, have their values, and they get, and you get these little tidbits. You get something that somebody is afraid of, and frankly, oil and gas, if it's 99%, you've got more a chance like getting in a car accident every morning. But people don't think about it that way because it's their sort of their norm. Oil and gas, and like, I think back to your point earlier, things have happened so fast. They have changed so fast. The interaction between oil and gas development in, in growing urban areas is happening so fast. And these conflicts are not something that, that is the norm for people. And so the... They understand that there's values and they get that there's something that's good and something that's bad and it's something I don't understand so it's a little bit scary and that's really close to my kid's school but I really like to drive my large SUV. I mean all of these things. People don't, you can't reconcile all of these things and we don't talk to people in terms that they understand. So like consumerism, talking about what petroleum products are in in everything that we use every day. We don't 
think about that. We're not talking to people about those things that they can digest and understand from an education standpoint. We're just telling them, no, fracking is fine. So education is possible. We're just educating people on the wrong thing vis-a-vis value. I think we're just talking to people. I'm not even sure that education needs to be the goal so much as it is how we're communicating with people. I would just add one thing to what Kathleen said, which I agree 100% about, but for for the, you know, this is something I mentioned before. Remember, graft what she just said onto a landscape where you know you're never going to convince about two-thirds of the public because one-third is going to be based entirely on their values and their, their moral foundation, which justifies that, look, we should all be doing things very organically and very zero impact. And the others are saying it's all about individual freedom and I should be able to do what I want. And so that conversation that she's talking about, in my view, if you want to move the needle in the political dynamic we work in, really don't obsess yourself with the folks that are on one end of the spectrum of the, uh, or the other. Obsess yourselves with the folks who practically just are, they are, like you said, thinking about, well, this, this SUV is good for my kids' whole soccer team, but on the other hand, I really want them to be able to study at night without the noise, but on the other hand, this, but on the other hand, that. Because the way political markets work, especially in a, in a democracy, if we have something like that, is roughly the folks in the middle matter. You need to capture the majority of the votes. And then the whole policy gets determined by the 51%. So it's really that group in the middle that are swayable. And frankly, they, they think much more in utilitarian terms. And they struggle with things that Kathleen was talking about. Well, I'm going to jump right in here, panelists, because you're actually providing, thank you, Matt, a very good segue for me. (laughs) DRW, this one's directed at you. We're seeing a lot of anti-movements keep it in the ground. We're seeing fight come from uh, alternative energies as if the oil and gas sector does not support oil and uh, alternatives themselves. And um, there's a question about, to y'all's point, what you're discussing, a lack of understanding of consumerism and energy poverty across the world. So how do we tie this all back to changing that narrative for the anti-keep-it-in-the-ground people who seem to not understand the consumerism side? Well, I mean, the math, and and, uh, Senator Warren, when she came out and talked about banning fracking January 20th. Good, uh, you got my hint. 2021. (laughs) Um, So here's the the math. We do 12.6 million barrels a day, 40% is produced from wells that came on last year, and the base decline of those wells in the first four months is 30%. So if you were to shut down fracking, in five months, we would end up losing approximately 2 million barrels a day. So that consumption is still going to exist. Saudi has a maximum sustainable capacity, that MSC they talk about, of 12 million barrels a day. They produce around 10. So we would decline 2 million barrels a day in five months, and Saudi would be able to pick up that capacity in roughly five months. Oil would go to 80 or 100. Same on natural gas. We produce 100 BCF a day. 67% of that is produced from fracking, and the same decline rate is going to occur. So you're going to decline 35 BCF a day going into winter, or you're in winter. It's January. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that gas is not even mobile right now. So what are you going to do? You're going to drive natural gas to 13 bucks, 15 bucks, 17 bucks an MCF. You're going to drive oil to 100. You're going to bankrupt all the oil and gas companies that have the expertise to do this. And all of that money is going to go overseas. So, you know, again, we can talk about education. I thought the points were really good. You know, maybe we're focusing on the wrong things. But, like, guarantee frack ban, worst idea ever. 
And so should she ever say that again, I will be going back on television and saying exactly what I just said to you because it is insane that they think, yes, we are part of the solution and we have hit peak oil. The U.S. will decline 100% in 2020 and then we will be part of the solution, not the problem because otherwise we're just going to offshore our pollution to other countries. Matthew, sir. How much of that rhetoric, I'm talking both sides of the aisle, the extremist comments, are based off of a primary system where we have the extremist people that are pushed in through a primary to basically make policy for the middle folks who are more open to listening to actually like doing an objective-based, data-based policy that will kind of lead us through this troubling China as we try to shift where our balance of energy sources come from. And that's... Yeah. I mean, that, that's a big, interesting question. I kind of feel like a lot of it, I don't know if I'd call it a primary system, I'd call it a two-party system. Yeah. So, so you do have, in a, you know, mostly around the world, you have parliamentary systems and representative democracies. Well, and two what, points is a line, so... Yeah, yeah, and so what we have <laughs> is we have just two points on this teeter-totter, and everyone, when they're just thinking about their own end of the spectrum, runs all the way to one side on the teeter-totter until the field of 15 winnows down to one. And then presumably they kind of move a little bit towards the middle. The way that, that's, that's how it's worked in a two-party system historically, but I think that the intersect of, of political dynamics and innovations in information technology mean that often the folks on the ends of the spectrum are staying on the ends of the spectrum even when it comes to the general election. That's concerning to me. You know, and I hope that eventually reality bites and they suffer the consequences in the general election. But I think we see it on both sides. You know, you see extremist policies on one side, historically, again, used to carry the primary conversation. Then everyone would compromise and come to the middle. Then we would have compromise throughout the actual... Um, the, the administration of a term. Now you see folks saying, you know what, it's extremist policies to get me through the primary, and actually I can raise enough money and, raise an, and create enough noise to kind of just push my agenda. And if I'm here four years later, fine, and if I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. And, and that's unfortunate. But, but again, I mean, pol- politicians, who goes into politics? Like how many people in this room want to go into politics? Do you want to... Just one. Just, just, just one. It's just and, you. And, and, and can you imagine the number of tiger pictures there's going to be out there? Um, we don't have experts running policy in things that matter. So we get these generalists. Like, when you think about all the nuance of oil and gas and all the things you know, and trying to explain to a regular person what we do, it's almost impossible. And so, to me, regardless of the primary system, I just don't think we have experts who are actually sharing concepts and, and being able to articulate. I don't the, know, Kathleen, do you agree? The experts are yeah. being forced yeah. out, frankly. Fair, fair. You know, they're being we forced out it. because interests on one end of the spectrum or the other, frankly, don't want people who know what the hell they're talking about in on the conversation. They basically have the keys to the castle for that period of time, and they're going to run as far and fast as they can. And I don't think we can sit on one end of the spectrum and point the finger at the other when basically everybody's hands are dirty at this point. People are supporting People are supporting politicians that serve their interests without actually serving broader institutional 
interests of, about how the rules of a representative democracy work. It's just that we've got the keys and we're gonna run as far as fast as we can. And it, becomes, and it becomes, let me say one more thing, it becomes a whack-a-mole. So what you're seeing at the national level for this industry is guess what? Lots of wins, we got a lot of what we want. What are you seeing at the state level? Are you seeing a lot of what you want at the state level? No, because it's whack-a-mole. You got everything you want at the federal level, and now all the same concerns that are actually the undercurrent of the soccer moms that actually worry about just practical things that you should be focusing on who are the median voters, they're not gonna stop being concerned about those things just because you got your agenda at the federal level. They're gonna show up in Fort Worth, they're gonna show up in Denver. They're gonna show up in actual energy producing communities where they know exactly what the trade-offs are and they're voting against you. I also real sorry. No, go for it. I got more. Yeah, um, go. I, I mean, I think part of the problem here is that we're not talking about solutions. You wanna, you wanna get rid of oil and gas, fine. But we gotta, we gotta talk about how we're gonna replace that revenue. We gotta talk about how we're gonna replace that jobs. We're gonna have to talk about how we replace the, the stuff that that creates, that my stove, right? Exactly, all of these things. We have to, like, all right, go work on replacing those things. You replace those things, fine. Let's get, we can get rid of the industry at that point. But if we're not focusing on how you actually replace it, then the, those, re, those impacts are so real and they're so painful. And we're not talking about that because we're just swirling and bitching and moaning about the problems and not talking about how we fix them. Asking for a little while. Do you want to say what you're going to say? So I'm from Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry. No, you're fine. Um, so I mean, from sorry Oklahoma. from Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm from Texas. It's fine. It works. Say who you. I was born in Lubbock, if that makes it any, like anything better. Um, so I'm from Oklahoma. So I moved to Colorado two and a half years ago. So this whole controversy is very new to me because we've always been a state that's been, like Texas, very backed by support and stuff like that. Um, when you talk about education, we had engineers in the schools teaching kids about oil and gas. We had like engineers taking a day out of their week to go in there and teach kids about what we do, what we're about, why it's also dangerous to be around certain facilities and stuff like that. Um, Proposition 112 obviously didn't pass, um, but we now have steeper regulations in Colorado. So at the local level. At, at the, it basically rules, the, the biggest push is that for the permitting at the well at the local level. So they have more say at the table. But, that, but there's, a, there's something to that. All the local regulations are more punitive. Correct. So you, there's yes. a baseline and you have to be hard or there the baseline. Let's call it local control. Yeah. There's, a, there's a mischaracterization. I would like you to wear black, but if you would like to wear dark black, yeah. Thank you. So we're talking about like the median people, but as a state, are we doing enough as individuals, as companies, to go out and put ourselves out there to educate? Okay, Matt, I'll let you take that one. Well, I, I think that you know there is no free lunch in energy, and I know that's been spit out there many, many times. But I think that most folks that you are able to reach, not on the edges, that are set in their ways with a religious vigor, that they're they're not going to look at the data. But I think that most folks, what do we really want? We want to raise the next generation of kids. We want to have you know, safe homes and everything else. But if we have a real conversation about, okay, what are the energy sources that we have available to us now? Not the magic battery that isn't scalable or economic. Um, 
where are we going to try to push to in the future in order to get that with the risks known? Because in order to have enough energy that it's affordable and scale and everything else in order to enjoy the lives that we enjoy, we're not even talking about developing economies that want that too. This is a, a bigger than just our conversations about this state or this country. Um, I think we need to have a conversation about that as a populace with the pros and cons on all sources. So I think part of what you're hitting on is a, is a challenge with the education system, generally speaking. It's really hard to, to change school curriculum. It's hard to get kids outside. Like, forget teaching them about energy. We can't give them, we can't put them outside on the playground anymore. Like, it's not happening. And so this is creating all kinds of fundamental problems. And so, how, so if you can't, if we can't integrate this stuff into the curriculum that's being taught in our schools, and I, and I think part of the other challenge here is not like, hey, how do we... One of my biggest issues with the oil and gas industry is that it has commandeered the word energy. And when we talk about energy, people think about oil and gas. Well, oil and gas would do really well to try to broaden that term and, and incorporate everybody else because there's some allies out there in these alternative energy sources that are, very, that are going to have these pragmatic conversations and that are going to broaden this conversation and I think may be more better received by the, the sort of the general public. I, I think when you think about, and I, so I think thinking about oil and gas education in the schools, that, that doesn't change, and I, and I know what you mean, and I get that, and that probably has to be better framed in sort of like bring your career today to school kind of thing. My son asked me to come and talk to his five-year-old class about what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy goes to work every day. Like, that's all I, that's, that's, I don't know how to explain it. But, it's, but I think this is part of the problem. It's like we can't, this education piece, that the industry whether it's oil and gas, whether it's electricity, any of these things are so hard and complicated to explain to literally people who understand it. Um, it's going to be really hard to figure out how we, how we continue to, to educate people in this space. Well, Matt, I'm going to pose the final question to you because we obviously need to open up to the audience. But from your perspective and what's being discussed right now, what can we do better as energy, not as only oil and gas? As energy. I think that it's one of those things like I, I kind of alluded to a little bit. I think having a conversation where we don't vilify responsible resource production, you know, if we're vilifying that, no matter where it's coming from, that is super elitist. And I don't think it's, it's morally correct. We have people in India and China as those economies develop, as their access to, to and sometimes clean up sometimes others, but uh, they have access to energy in order to grow that and afford enough time in their day to either improve their lives through education or spend more time with their kids. To say that, oh, we have to go this way isn't correct. And I think that there's been comments on whether you're talking to a climate denialist or somebody else that thinks that, you know, hydraulic stimulation is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. They're misguided and we need to come back to the center and talk about, you know, database policy. Is it actually going to change it? So. Well, panelists, thank you so much. Uh, some of you are double fisting, so it seems like a good time to open it up to the audience. Thank you for taking the time uh, this evening. I all think of I, us. All of us are double fisting. Uh, audience, questions? Gabby, I know that you're ready to go. Okay. Um, thank you all for your comments today. So I, 
I've worked in other industries. I've worked in public relations. And I always think with oil and gas, we have been reactive instead of proactive. And that that's been our biggest Achilles heel. So even when we talk about going into schools, and I run DPC, so I do a lot of that. It's such a far out push for that to come to fruition. Those kids have to go through a lot of school and then go into the world and then talk about it. So I have these conversations with my millennial friends who also went to Boulder, eek, uh, and work at Davido and places like that. And, and I really push them on this, and much to you know multiple points, DRW, around education for renewable sources, and it's not all you know roses and green grass and the rest of it. How do we address this kind of branding problem? I mean, more and more companies, not oil and gas, have corporate social, social responsibility, and they lean into that. And every time I see a Patagonia ad, I want to throw something at a TV screen. But I also go, why can't we come back from that? Why can't we learn from some of these other companies that have pushed the kind of limits on branding and shift our thinking about how we communicate to the broader public? I'm, I'm the dismally, I'll jump in here real quick. I'm the dismal, econ, the dismal scientist, the economist, but I'm actually not as pessimistic as a lot of people in the industry are. Again, because I see what I think we need to do is take concerns seriously, you know, not just dismiss them because, look, it's 99% chance heads I win and only 1% chance tails you lose. Understand the real bargain that we're having with our stakeholders. Take it seriously, but also, frankly, don't obsess over the, the folks on one end of the spectrum or the other. It's, the, you know, the more you take the issues seriously, if you want to drive a science-based policy conversation, then actually dig into the concerns. You know, take them seriously, and you know what? You'll find out some of them are ridiculous, and that allows everyone to understand those are the ones we don't want to take seriously. But there are others that are actually legitimate, and there may be simple workarounds for actually accommodating our neighbors and allowing the industry to continue to deliver what it does. And so I'm, in a weird way, less pessimistic than a lot of what I hear in the industry because I tend to focus on that middle third who are really going to matter when it comes to policy conversations. They may not be the noisiest, and when we stop, as you were saying, and talk to everyone on the street, actually they're the ones who are least likely to share their opinion about how they really feel because they're conflicted because they actually think about balancing all these concerns. And so it takes work to actually get down to the conversation that matters with the folks that matter. But don't get too worked up if, if you know, the folks that are completely immobile in their position aren't going to change their position. But I think I, this goes back to we're not communicating with people along things I understand. Yes. We've got to find those avenues Again, consumerism is like the easiest thing. Like people buy stuff. Are there any other questions? Yes. Well, first of all, I'm from, I'm from the Montana North Dakota border, so I want to know where you're uh, where you're hunting at. That you're seeing pheasants on all sides of the road. <laughs> the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, the Gulf of Mexico. They're not that easy to find. It was a metaphor. Sorry. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so I'm on the stimulation side, um, but. Uh, Realistically, as a free market follower, you know, I'm a firm believer in Adam Smith, but uh, do, do any of you guys know, externalities aside, what the actual raw cost of each form of energy is? Coal, uh, renewables, wind, solar, uh, natural gas. 
per megawatt per BTU. You know, that's that's stuff that I've looked for that I've never really been able to find. It's hard to it's hard to find. It's really hard to find. So the one place you can look is um, I think it's is Lazar Freed is that the yeah. big investment firm? So they produce the levelized cost of energy um, for these different sources of electricity generation. That would be one place to start, and I would recommend reading the back matter on that because um, some of those numbers are produced under the regulatory assumptions that we have, which essentially means forcing, like calculating in the cost of those externalities, and others are, are don't calculating in the cost of those externalities. Uh, not that one is good or bad, it's just that you need to read the footnotes, but the, the term I would search for is levelized cost of energy, and that gives you that comparison point, which exactly. what you were gonna <laughs> point out, sorry. Ditto. <laughs> are there any other questions? No? Well, oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, really quick, I noticed everyone got pretty fired up about are people informed, are they not? <laughs> and then we also went back and forth on how do we educate them, and so that seems like a really hot topic. Um, but hot take of the day. Hot take of the day. My bad. Boy, I like it. Um, and, and the quick answer seemed to be we educate them on consumerism. In my experience, the people that oppose oil and gas are also very anti-consumerism. And so I wonder, like, what is the educational, right? Like, we educate them differently. So how do we educate them differently that doesn't involve a consumerism argument? I, I agree. I think the, the, the thing that I took away from this is the education thing. I totally agree with you, and you're probably right that the people who are against oil and gas are also against consumerism. I do think about what's on television, and we don't see a lot of positive stories whatsoever about people in oil and gas. You know, you get some stiff CEO go talk about the quarterly results, whereas, you know, you have these transformational companies like Adam Newman with WeWork, the greatest visionary of all time that really wasn't, but they get a lot of press, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I think, so, so to education, I don't know that we'll ever pivot away from we are hated, but I just, I, I firmly believe that we don't have a face in industry that someone can like call out and point and yell and whatever, whereas we have a Bill Gates and we have a Warren Buffett and we have a Jeff Bezos and we have a Adam Newman, and, and, but we don't have, like there's no one really interesting in oil and gas that's out there. Um, so may, maybe that's the answer. That I'm, I'm doing my best. That and, that and the allies. Get other people as your spokespeople. And I think that's part of it. There's, there's good stories about oil and gas people, and you get like the worker in the field sponsored by oil and gas. You got to find somebody else to tell the story. I mean, I think that's, that's really, really important. Oil and gas has done a terrible job of telling their story until all of a sudden they were under attack. To your point, like everything's super defensive. Well, now you don't get to be proactive anymore because no one trusts you because it's all you're already on defense. So find somebody else. Marky uh, Mark. Yes, Marky Mark. Solution. You talk about, and we're talking about, you know, a two-party system that has a giant pendulum swing. You know, it may not be every four years, but it may be, you know, eight to 16. And four. We're, four. Well, whatever. But <laughs> I'm saying that, okay, so if we think about where are other sources of energy coming from or where are they sourced at? You know, on that same group of people are vilifying, you know, copper mines in the southwest. You know, they're talking about the, the impacts 
that you actually get from the rare earth metals that you're using for making photovoltaics. Like we have to have a realistic conversation about where all this stuff is coming from and both the positives and the negatives of it. And I think you mentioned something about consumerism there. I think a lot of people don't know until they feel the unconscious pressure of their pocketbook where they're spending their energy. And if we don't measure it, how do we get out of that? You know, um, I personally bought a unit that goes on my electrical panel and uses machine learning algorithms in order to identify the sources of usage. You would. You're right, I would. He wrote code to replace me. Yeah, he would. But here's the thing is, if you're not measuring anything in business, if you're not measuring it, how do you know what you're changing? And I think that's important. Well, panelists, you have given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for going over time. And to all of our audience who braved the blizzard, I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are listening to The Crude Audacity, and keep us tuned in. All right, guys, how awesome are those panelists? They are the real experts, and they really hit it home. Also, side note, if any of you are interested in meeting Matt Bauer regarding his Python classes or company training opportunities, his info will be linked below in the show notes. Also, Matt has partnered up with RMAG to do a subsurface Python class on February 13th, 2020. So keep your eyes open for it, and I will be sure to add more information as it becomes available. As you know, we are in the process of finalizing our 2020 schedule. So if you are at all interested in sponsoring a future Fireside Energy panel, give me a shout. And as I said before, OGGN and the Crude Audacity will be hitting the road in 2020. Locations include Calgary, Casper, Wyoming, Durango, San Francisco Bay Area, and of course, a number of events here in Denver. It's going to be a killer year, and I'll see you guys out there.